0: What about you, Ken? Did you use scripted prayers?
1: No. When you ask that question and I chew on it, no, there was nothing scripted except reading the passage from the Last Supper. I think that what I would do is I would stand at the table, I would read one of the four gospels' accounting of the Last Supper, I would read it, and then I would just sort of extemporaneously, you know, like... You know to say a few things you know like uh m- make it up as i went along like a beat poet you know to sort of like bounce off whatever struck me and i would talk for maybe a minute and then we would pass them out and of course right. no one came forward to receive from me it was passed out uh, down the uh, various you know pews and so no there was nothing yeah. scripted <laughs>
2: Well, hello, and welcome to another sinus-clearing episode of On the Journey with Matt and Ken and Kenny. Hope you're all doing great. Uh, Some of you have been following this series of On the Journey for a very long time, and if you have been, then we're glad you're still here. If you just joined us, uh, this is a series of episodes where some of us who grew up in various evangelical traditions can... Hensley was a Baptist pastor. Kenny Burchard was a uh, Pentecostal pastor. I was an evangelical rock and roller. Uh, We all ended up Catholic, and that's kind of the basis for these discussions. We've been doing a series, a lengthy series, actually, about the Mass uh, and comparing it to the different ways that we used to worship uh, in our Protestant backgrounds, and hopefully this is bringing a little bit of light and clarity. We're going to talk specifically about the Liturgy of the Eucharist Today, if you want to connect with us, we're with the Coming Home Network, chnetwork.org is how you can uh, find all kinds of resources connected to what we do. Again, that's chnetwork.org. We also have an online community. It is full of all sorts of people uh, who are on various journeys of their own, connecting with each other, uh, sharing encouragement and prayers and fellowship and insights that's community.chnetwork.org and if you are appreciating what we do and want to make sure that we can continue to do so and make it available to as many people uh as possible at no charge go to chnetwork.org slash donate to support the work ken and kenny how are you
0: I'm doing great I, on this sinus, sinus clean, clearing episode. <laughs>
1: yeah,
0: yeah, yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. I sniffed a couple of times and you're right, it worked, it, it worked. <laughs> it,
2: there you go, there you go. It happens, it's, Good. It's, that, it's that time of year, it's the time of year. Good to be
1: here, Matt, what are we doing today? Yes. We're doing oh, a lot today. Safe. This is in the great
2: tradition of this series of episodes where we take a two minute portion of the mass and spend an hour of it, Uh hour of time on it. Um, <laughs> So, there's this prayer uh that we're gonna get into a very lengthy prayer um by lengthy we mean like maybe ninety seconds uh it's one of those that even if your priest doesn't do it like the micro machine man like sometimes this goes really fast, sometimes it goes really slow, but even cradle Catholics might not notice this prayer, and there is a lot in it that explains what it is that we're doing at mass we're gonna get into that um this is also gonna bring up. A bunch of opportunities to talk about how we worshipped before in our Protestant context, and this prayer will, I think, bring a lot of that into really stark contrast. So we'll start with you, Kenny Burchard. Um, Where did we end off last time, and what is it that we're
0: diving into now? Well, where we where we ended last time is, um, Father, whoever your priest is, has prayed that the uh, The bread and wine that began as gifts would become for us the body and blood of christ so the the epiclesis prayer and we begin in this section in the anamnesis or the anamnesis, the remembrance uh, of Jesus, and uh, we've been asked to pray with him that the Lord would would make all this happen, and now we are going to go into, as you said, a really long prayer. Um, We ended last time at that moment in the celebration of the Eucharist where the real change has occurred. The the bread and wine have become the body and blood of Christ. Um, They've been, as St. Justin Martyr said, transmutated. <laughs> they have become, as Paul said in his letter to the Corinthians, the body and blood of Christ. And so um we want to talk about how we're going to pray now that jesus is really present among us body blood soul and divinity and um you know for those who may or may not be familiar with the mass in the in the ordinary form of the roman rite which all three of us celebrate in our parishes there are actually four possible eucharistic prayers uh that can be used during this uh during the celebration of the eucharist and for our purposes today we're going to look at the third eucharistic prayer and i don't know how, about you guys but this is most commonly the prayer that's used by by my priest when we uh when we celebrate the mass he uses all four but this is the one he uses more than any other prayer and we've, for the sake of this episode, broken that prayer down into seven sections. So, um, and and I just say this before I, I toss it to you guys for a minute, for for a little uh, on the journey unpacking here. Um, this prayer is so powerful because it it unlocks for the, for those who are listening, those who have ears to hear, our Catholic understanding of a lot of different things, the gospel. Uh, our ecclesiology, salvation, and how communion draws us up into all of those things.
2: Yeah, and again, just going back to this idea of this being a lengthy prayer. By lengthy prayer, um, I just want to point out that several of us here, well, I mean, Richard, you were a Pentecostal, and Ken, you were a mm-hmm. Baptist. I went to some prayer meetings, man. And when we say lengthy prayer, we know what lengthy prayers are. They are, uh, you know, pastor or the Bible study leader going on for four to five minutes. This is not that long, right? It's scripted, um, but it is, it is is jam-packed. And it's one of those things, too. It's It's long enough to where you might not notice it because there's a whole bunch of stuff going on in the middle of a bunch of other things, right? It's between the consecration and the time that you receive communion. Um, mm-hmm. And it could be like, you know, you get distracted and you, and you miss this. But I, I want to make sure, as you were saying, that we get into each of the pieces of this because there is a, a load of theology in every single one of these sections.
1: Yeah. yeah. And the thing that pops into my mind, Matt, is that there is more in this one minute to 90 second prayer than I ever heard in any five or 10 minute prayer before. Because right. you can only say, Father, we just want to thank you or Father, we just this. You can only say that so many times. This thing is jam-packed. <laughs> Um in fact when we met earlier in the week to go over this material, we we thought of this at first as this one section in an episode we were gonna do. But Matt right. uh Matt pointed out that it was just so dense that we kind of slowed ourselves down and thought and thought, you know what? Maybe we should just chew our way through this prayer and talk about it because it is so dense with theology and high theology.
0: Yeah, he you you got the Holy Ghost on that one, uh uh <laughs> Matt. I say. And I and I agree. Uh, you know that this is uh, this is something that we need to do, and I don't know if you guys do this. Uh, you know, as former Protestants who converted to the Catholic Church, but I encourage people in our parish who are lifelong Catholics to read the Mass and to absorb what's being prayed. You know, before they go to Mass, so that they can meditate. On what's being said. So hopefully we'll provide some helpful material for people who really want to soak in what is happening during this incredible prayer, uh, the, the third Eucharistic prayer in the case of this episode. But all four of them are, are just amazing. Um, you know, we didn't r- really talk about this too much at the front end, and before I get into the prayer, I'll ask you guys Um, because this is really like we talk about four prayers and people might say, gosh, that sounds like religious bondage or legalism. You only have four prayers. I can pray whatever I want over the Lord's Supper at my church. When I was Pastor Kenny, we only did communion 12 times a year, maybe, uh, because we didn't want it to fall into a, quote, dead ritual. And so every month it was like, well, what are we going to do for communion? And who's going to say the devotional and what's what are they going to pray and it could be anything like you just never knew what someone was going to come up with or i would sometimes break people up into small groups during communion and ask them to create their own prayers you know during during communion so it was all over the map there was no such thing as one of four eucharistic prayers in our gathering and i i don't know ken about you if you if you used scripted prayers I know in some traditions those are used in yours, Matt, but what about you, Ken? Did you use scripted prayers? No,
1: when you ask that question and I chew on it, no, there was nothing scripted except reading the passage from the Last Supper. I think that what I would do is I would stand at the table, I would read one of the four Gospels' accounting of the Last Supper, I would read it, and then I would just sort of extemporaneously, you know, like you know, to say a few things, you know, like make it up as I went along, like a beat poet, you know, to sort of like bounce off whatever struck me. And I would talk for maybe a minute and then we would pass them out. And of course, no one came forward to receive from me. It was passed out uh, down the uh, various, you know, pews. And so, no, there was nothing scripted.
2: Yeah. And all I'll say to add add on to that is that, um, you know, with the exception of just a couple of times, and this was very late in my Wesleyan life when i uh experienced john wesley's communion service uh and which is very scripted right and it is very scripted off of about i'd say 85% of the catholic liturgy of the eucharist <laughs> right um most of the time it was the only thing that was actually scripted was the uh, the institution narrative right um yeah the uh the the reading of the of the last supper uh yeah. narrative so so yeah that was my experience
0: yeah <clears throat> and when we talk about scripted prayers you know that that can be like Uh, fingernails on a chalkboard to some people, they just think that's the epitome of legalism and dead religious bondage. The way that we think about it as Catholics is that we have a certain faith, the faith. And when we celebrate the Eucharist, we want to celebrate it biblically, and we want to celebrate it carefully, and we want to celebrate it truthfully. And so we don't want to use our own words. We want to use God's words and the church's words, which many of these words have been, uh, passed down since the very beginning of, of, you know, of, of the church of Jesus going all the way back to the New Testament. And that's why many of the prayers in this quote, scripted prayer are biblical quotations. We use the words of God as we worship him. And, um, so we, we want to unpack that now in the mass as this prayer is about to launch something happens something really interesting happens father has been kneeling in in front of the altar we've just prayed and then he stands up you know after the epiclesis and after he begins the anamnesis the the remembrance of what's being what's going on here he then stands up and he says this little Uh, phrase, it's two words in Latin and a few in English. He says, mysterium fidei, or in English, the mystery of faith, just before we hear him say this longer prayer. And (laughs) I think we need to talk about why Father says this, because after he says the mystery of faith, then we respond to it. And I was thinking about this idea of mystery. Whoever the priest is is saying that what's on the altar is the mystery of faith. Now, I don't know about you guys, but when I think of the word mystery, especially in my American colloquial terms, I think of Scooby-Doo and the mystery machine, you know, or or Sherlock Holmes is solving a mystery. So mystery is like, oh, we just don't know what's happened. We've got to figure it out um there are clues but we don't know how to put it all together that's kind of the way we think of mystery but that is not what is meant here by mystery in the mass what's meant by mystery in the mass is that if we only had physical our physical eyes to see if we only had our physical hands to touch if we only had our physical ears to hear we wouldn't have we would have no idea what's going on But because God has gotten involved, he has made known to us something that we could otherwise not perceive, and it has happened in our midst. Jesus, the crucified, buried, risen, and ascended Jesus, is keeping his promise to his church and coming into our midst. And Father says as much by saying, the mystery of faith. And we respond to that with words of scripture, like "What's on the altar, Father?" Well, we say this after the mystery of faith: We, the congregation, proclaim your death, O Lord, and profess your resurrection until you come again. What has happened in the past and what will happen in the future is present to this working, this worshiping congregation. That is said before the prayer that we're going to dig into today, and I don't know if you have any reflections on that, Ken. Um, th- this the mystery of faith language. Yeah, and well, how to make sense, just to of say,
1: it. just to say that I think you. I j- only to say that I think you said it very well. What has just happened on the altar is that the bread and the wine that we've offered there have been consecrated and the prayer of consecration has taken place, and the real presence of Christ has taken place, and yet, yeah, if, if you only had your eyes, uh, you would just say, nothing has happened. Nothing has happened, right. and yet, right. what has happened is that Christ has become present with us sacramentally in the most unique way, and so that's what we're proclaiming, the mystery of faith. It's something that we believe, it's something that the eyes of faith conceive. It's something that we would not know, and no one would know it if they ran up there and they grabbed the the uh, the items off the altar and started putting a microscope on them and all that. They wouldn't or you know putting them in test tubes and boiling them up in a chemistry lab, they wouldn't find anything. So no, I think you said right. it well. We are proclaiming what has just happened. He's proclaiming the priest is proclaiming the mystery of faith, and we're responding, yes. Yeah, the only then,
2: thing I'd add to that is if you, if you hang out in an Eastern Rite Catholic Church or an Orthodox Church, uh, they don't necessarily call them sacraments the way that we call them sacraments. They call them mysteries, right? Right. Um, that's, that's, that's their term for right. the sacraments. Um, I mean, this is, this is what we're, right. we're talking about. Like a, a sacred thing that takes us into something that, um, is beyond what our senses can detect.
0: Yeah. And in, in that way, it's not, when when catholics and you know eastern christians orthodox Christians say mystery they're not saying spooky thing and they're not saying unknowable thing it it is unknowable unless god's involved in it unless unless faith accompanies it but what we're saying is in simple terms heaven and earth have just slammed into each other <laughs> right in the middle of our gathering and for those who have ears to hear and eyes to see Uh, we respond to that by proclaiming it and professing it. As Paul says, as often as you um, eat the bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Uh, You participate in this uh, coming together of heaven and earth until the consummation of the ages. Well, after we say this together about what's happened on the altar and in the midst of the gathered assembly— then this prayer launches out. The Father, the priest, the presiding priest, just goes into prayer about all of this. And so let's start with, if we can, the first part of this prayer. The priest, with hands extended, uh, says this. After we've done our profession and our our proclamation, he says, Therefore, in other words, since Jesus is (laughs) here— Uh, I'll say something at the end, but let me toss it to you, Matt, uh, or sorry, to you, Ken, because you want to bring some insight into this language of sacrifice.
1: Yeah. What struck me right away in reading this, Kenny, is the sacrificial language. The prayer begins, I'm reading again, Therefore, O Lord, as we celebrate the memorial of the saving passion of your Son, okay, And it ends with, okay, I'm going to come back to the word memorial in a little bit, where we celebrate the memorial. And it ends with, we offer you in Thanksgiving this holy and living sacrifice. Now, I don't want to freak the two of you out, because I know this is kind of a round robin we're all going to sort of toss in. But I have quite a bit that I want to say about this sacrificial language. Um, and I, I'm going to split it up a little bit, but I have quite a bit that I want to say about that. It comes up in the first four sections that we're going to read of this prayer, and I'm going to comment about it on the first two, I think. Um, but I, w- I want to simply start by saying that as a Protestant, as an evangelical, I had no conception of the Eucharist as being a sacrifice or an offering of any kind. Okay, there's this no conception. That was not a part of my mental framework in thinking about the Lord's Supper at all. And so when I first began to explore the writings of the early church fathers, and this happens so frequently with people who do, and I began to really listen. That's the thing. When I began to really listen to how the early church fathers talked about the Eucharist, I was quite literally blown away. They continually used sacrificial language, not just here and there, not in some kind of ambiguous way or nebulous, but again and again, repeatedly. And so for now, on this first section, all I want to do is this. I want those who are listening or watching this episode to simply hear what I heard. I, I, I want you to simply listen to a few of what the early church fathers said about the Eucharist as being a sacrifice. First of all, from the Didache which simply means the, the teaching. That's all it means. It's from a Greek word um, that, that means to teach or teacher. Anyway, this is the earliest document that we have describing Christian worship. The earliest that we have. Some scholars dated as early as 50 AD, 60, 70. No one really knows, but it's very early. Listen to what the, we read in the Didache. Assemble on the Lord's day and break bread and offer, offer the Eucharist, even there, Offer the Eucharist? I I never would have said that as a Baptist. Here, we're, we're going to offer the Lord's Supper. No. Offer the Eucharist, but first make confession of your faults so that your sacrifice may be pure. Anyone who has a difference with his fellow is not to take part until he has been reconciled, so as to avoid profaning your sacrifice. For this is the offering of which the Lord said, Everywhere and always bring me a sacrifice that is undefiled for I am a great king, says the Lord, and my name is the wonder of nations. He's quoting from Malachi chapter one. Okay, here's the earliest document we have describing Christian worship, Kenny and Matt, and the word offering, sacrifice, just turns up several times. The Eucharist is conceived as being something that is being offered up as a sacrifice. Okay, another very important early witness is St. Clement of Rome, of course. Clement's letter to the church of Corinth is dated often 70 AD, 80 AD, maybe 90. He's one of the earliest bishops of Rome. And this is what he says. Our sin will not be small if we eject from the episcopate those who blamelessly and holily have offered the sacrifices. Blessed are those presbyters who have finished their course and who have obtained a fruitful and perfect release. Well, I was a presbyter in my church. That is, I was conceived as an elder in my church for many years, and I never once offered a sacrifice when I was in church, except to offer up my life to the Lord. But I I never ever would have conceived of the Lord's supper as a sacrifice. And yet here again, we're reading from the earliest documents and it's all over them. It's all over them. I have just one more. This is very early too. This is from St. Ignatius, the Bishop of Antioch in Syria. Now, Ignatius was a disciple of the apostle John himself. He was installed as a bishop by the apostles Peter and Paul. Okay, writing around 107 AD to 110 AD, this is what what Ignatius said. Take heed then to have but one Eucharist, for there is one flesh of our Lord Jesus Christ and one cup to show forth the unity in his blood, one altar as there is one bishop along with the presbytery and the deacons. And I could go on quoting from Justin Martyr, from Irenaeus, Cyprian, Tertullian, Augustine, Ambrose, all the way through, you guys. All of them, all of them understand the Eucharist in sacrificial terms. It's something that is being offered on an altar, which is another word that blew me away because I didn't have it. I don't know about you and your Pentecostal church, Kenny. Did you have an altar? I mean, even though you had an altar call, did you have an altar?
0: Not for the Eucharist. We thought of the altar... Uh, in the way of Charles Finney, the anxious bench in which you would go and, you know, cry and tell God how sorry you were for being a bad sinner. There, there was no Eucharistic celebration. We didn't tie our concept yeah. of altar to the Lord's table. It was at essentially all. an altar rail, right? For most of us. Right. Um, yeah. Rather than an altar.
1: Well, uh, let me finish by simply saying this in the early church documents, the early church writings, there are altars in churches, and there are altars because a sacrifice is being offered.
2: All right. I have a series of yes or no questions. This is kind of my, uh, <laughs> my research into how Baptists and Pentecostals did this, because I know how we did it in my Nazarene Methodist non-denominational Church of Christ world um, in various different ways. So uh, just to read back through this. Therefore, o Lord, we celebrate the memorial of the saving passion of your son, his wondrous resurrection and ascension into heaven. <clears throat> and we look forward to a second coming. We offer you in thanksgiving in this holy and living sacrifice. In my world, I would have thought we offer the memorial of the night you were betrayed and sitting at that table. So I'm just going to ask a yes or no question. When you celebrated the Lord's Supper, did you believe you were celebrating also the Passion? Yes or no?
0: No. Yes.
2: Okay. That's fascinating. Uh- That's fascinating. How about his resurrection? Did you think you were celebrating his resurrection also? No. No. Nope. How about his ascension into heaven? No. No way. How about how about look uh, celebrating it as a way to look forward to the second coming? No. I just asked that because this is all in nope. here, right? <laughs> this is <Yeah>. all <laughs> yeah. This is all built into yeah. the thing. Like I would have never yeah. we would have said we're we're, we're remembering Um, the hardest night of Jesus's life before he went and did this all, all this for us. Right. The other thing too, and just to get back into the sacrifice, uh, language. So when I hear we offer you in Thanksgiving, this holy and living sacrifice, um, two things come to mind. Uh, first of all, uh, the greatest Christian metalcore band or one of the greatest Christian metalcore bands of all time, living sacrifice, right. Um, who has...
1: Well, I mean, you know, that came to my mind too, but I just didn't mention it, Matt. so I'm glad you. well, were, I didn't want to I on. didn't
2: want to step on your toes if you were going to mention it before I did. But the other thing is Romans twelve chapter one, from which uh, living sacrifice the band and this passage kind of get their their understanding. Um, and, and this is not a proof text or anything, but this is just a thing that I read differently now, having heard the language that goes on in this Eucharistic prayer, right? Uh, a lot of Christians for us, I mean, I remember in our Nazarene church, we committed as a church to memorize basically all of Romans 12 as a congregation, because it's such a powerful encapsulation of what it means to be a Christian. And this is what it says at the beginning. Therefore, I urge you, St. Paul tells the Romans, brothers, in view of God's mercy to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Um, This is the new international version. Okay, when I heard living sacrifice be transformed in that world, I'm like, Man, I should stop thinking like a worldly person and start thinking like the Lord wants me to think Now that I have like a Eucharistic sensibility about me, I think I should connect myself with a living sacrifice on the altar, and as the bread and wine are transformed, so should I be transformed. This is not a proof text, but it does hit me different now when I read that, knowing what I know now about about how the church understands the Eucharist, so that's my only thing I wanted to add to
1: that
0: I, I think it's the right way to to think about it there's for sure there's no doubt that you know in the real world of everyday living we got to offer ourselves to God and and not to sin and Satan and you know our old lives, but at the Eucharistic table is the epicenter of how we offer ourselves to God, and then we take that transformed life, as we're going to see in a couple of weeks, out of this celebration and into the world. So there's there's no either or about it. It's it's both. But here at the Eucharistic table is where we join the body of Jesus, which is offered to God in obedience and in love and in sacrifice. We join ourselves to His sacrifice. and uh, and, and by doing so, We join the one who is acceptable to God. And and, and, uh, there is a good segue into the next part of this prayer, which begins this way. Look, we pray, upon the oblation of your church uh, and recognizing the sacrificial victim by whose death you willed to reconcile us to yourself, grant That we who are nourished by the body and blood of your son and filled with his holy spirit may become one body, one spirit in Christ. Before I toss it to you, Matt, I'll just say there it is where we, where we're tying these two ideas together. Jesus is the pleasing sacrifice. His body is offered to God. But now we're saying, Look at the, ob- God, look at the oblation of your church. This is, uh, this is Old Testament language for pouring out your offering. Even Paul says, I have, I've been poured out like a drink offering, which is to say, I've emptied my whole life in obedience to God. That's what we're saying in the Mass. We also bring our whole lives to God through Jesus at this altar of sacrifice and we're joining ourselves to the sacrificial victim, Jesus, and it is through his death that we are reconciled to God. I'll say just that much and toss it to you, Matt. All right, so I can tell you that if you had come
2: up to me and said, did you know that every time you receive, uh, or well, we wouldn't have said really receive, every time you take communion, you're being united mystically with the entire body of Christ and all Christians, so I'd been like, man, come on. That's a little bit crazy. That's a little bit... I, that's what it's saying in this prayer, right? This is a bold claim by the Catholic Church. Grant that we who are nourished by the body and blood of your son are and are filled with his Holy Spirit may become one body and one spirit in Christ. We're asking that through this receiving of the bread and wine communion, we might actually commune. Right. That's a bold claim by the Catholic Church. And it sounds like the kind of thing that like is a little bit crazy unless you've read St. Paul. Who says in 1 Corinthians ten um, is is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks a participation in the blood of Christ? Sure, yeah, I would have I would have been on board with that. Um, and is not the bread that we break a participation in the body of Christ? I would have said yeah, um, because there is one loaf, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one loaf. I wouldn't have known exactly what to do with that. I would have said, sure, everybody in this room at my church is now kind of like in a special place, a special headspace together, you know, kind of having like a special prayer time together. I would not have said what Paul intended, which is like, you are now, St. Paul, who will later talk about like the mystical body of Christ as like this big, huge living thing. Like he's talking about the visible church as like a mystical body. And he's talking about communion as the way that that happens. Like this is a, this is a big, big claim that St. Paul makes and a big claim that the church backs St. Paul up on. Like when we receive communion, we're going to talk about this in later sections of this prayer. It is not just being like, hey, so my whole family's at church today. and We all received communion together. Wasn't that all special that we were all there at the same time? No, it's saying you are like a million people showed up in the Congo to see Pope Francis celebrate mass. And that's cool that that happened over there. But guess what? We're in communion with them. Whether Pope Francis is there or not, because if the Eucharist is real, then every time, I mean, this time we just caught him on camera, but every time those people receive communion, every time those people celebrate Mass, there is a communion that's happening. This is a big, bold claim by the church in this prayer, but it's a claim that's absolutely
0: backed up by scripture. Yeah, yeah. And there's well, more, l- uh, more about sacrifice, right? Ken, to toss it to well, you. Well, let
1: me, let me pitch in. First of all, I do want to mention these words here where it says, that we who are nourished by the Mm -hmm. body and blood of your son, something else I would have never said, you know, that's, that's, that's one way that I reflect on these changes in becoming Catholic. Is I ask myself, would you have ever talked like this, Ken, when you were a Baptist pastor? Okay. We are nourished by the body and blood of your son. It reminds me of something St. Ignatius of Antioch said when he referred to the Eucharist as, and I'm quoting the medicine of immortality. (laughs) It's a medicine. It's a, that, makes us immortal. We're nourished by the body and blood. And I know there are more too. I think that it's Justin Martyr who talks about our flesh being nourished by the body and blood of Christ too. But yeah, I want to focus on the sacrificial terms again, because this is the way in which I I had to come the furthest, I guess, as a Protestant becoming Catholic, was in this idea that there's the real presence, there's this miracle taking place where Christ becomes present, but also the idea that what we're doing is a sacrifice that's being offered up. We see this again in this part of the prayer that, that you just read, Kenny. And, and I'll read a couple of the words again. Look, we pray upon the oblation of your church and recognizing the sacrificial victim by whose death you willed to reconcile the world to. So, okay, the early church, as I said in my last little soliloquy or my monologue, The early church understood the Eucharist in sacrificial terms, but here's one main reason, one major reason. It's because they understood the Last Supper in sacrificial terms, and that's what I want to focus on for a minute, uh, Kenny and, and Matt. Think with me about four points, okay? And I just send this out over the airwaves. First of all, Jesus celebrated the Last Supper in conjunction with the Passover meal, which was not merely a meal in which the Passover from Egypt or Passover in Egypt was remembered. It was a sacrificial meal. The Passover lamb was slain and was eaten. It was a sacrificial meal. So that's point one. Jesus celebrated the last supper in conjunction with the Passover meal. That gives us a hint right away that this is a sacrificial kind of thing that's going on. This is not just a meal. Secondly, the words of Jesus at the last supper, think about these this is my body given for you, this is my blood. This sounds like a a sacrifice is being described right there. Again, a sacrifice is being offered. In fact, and this is what really hit me. When Jesus says, it's recorded in a couple of the gospels, I know Matthew and Mark. When Jesus says, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for their forgiveness of sins, when the apostles heard those words, they would have thought immediately of Exodus chapter 24 verse eight, where Moses is offering a sacrifice to inaugurate the old covenant with God's people, the children of Israel. And he uses these exact same words. That is the blood of the covenant. Here's what Moses said in Exodus 24 verse eight. And Moses took the blood and threw it upon the people. And he said, behold, the blood of the covenant, which the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. In other words, when Jesus, or let me put it this way, Jesus was consciously echoing the words of Moses at the Last Supper when he said, this is my blood of the covenant. He's just saying flat out, just like Moses took the blood and sprinkled it inaugurating the old covenant This is my blood inaugurating a new covenant. Again, sacrificial language. Point three. I've got four points here. Point three. Even the words do this, even the words do this are charged in the context with sacrificial overtones. And I see you laughing, Kenny, like you wanted to take over and teach this part. Okay, sorry. I'm going to do it. All right.
0: Go go all all septuagint on us now, Ken. Come on. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah,
1: I see you smiling there. Yeah, because, okay, the Greek verb that is translated do here, and Jesus uses these words in all four gospel accounts, do this. And in fact, in Paul's account in 1 Corinthians 15, he includes that, do this. It's the simple common Greek verb, poieo, poieo. Okay. It means to do, it's a common verb. It means to do, to perform, to make. It can be used in any one of these ways or interpreted in any one of these ways. However, I'm gonna go all Septuagint on you now, okay? It turns out that in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, yes, the Septuagint, the LXX, whenever, whenever the word, the Greek verb poieo is used in the context of someone making a sacrifice, it always means to offer. It it, it should be rightly translated to offer, meaning to offer a sacrifice, to offer. For instance, I'm going to give a couple of examples. In Exodus 29, verses 38 and 39, we read this in the Septuagint. One lamb you shall do in the morning, and the other lamb you shall do in the evening is talking about the morning and evening sacrifices. In Leviticus 9, verse 7, quoting, Approach the altar and do your sin offering and your burnt offering. And there there, there are more examples, but because of this, when Jesus says, this is my body, this is my blood, do this in memory of me, I believe that in the, speaking as a Jew, speaking to Jews with the Bible behind him, the old covenant, the old Testament in his mind, Jesus is saying, this is my body, this is my blood, offer this in remembrance of me. He's talking about a sacrifice to be offered into the future. Okay, so those are three points, and here's one more. The very language of remembrance is sacrificial language. We read in the Old Testament about burnt offerings and sin offerings and guilt offerings, but we also read about memorial offerings, memorial offerings. And when the children of Israel sacrificed the Passover lamb every year, this was a memorial of the Passover, it was a memorial offering that they were sacrificing. And so I believe in the context again, when Jesus at the Last Supper says, do this in remembrance of me, he's basically saying, offer this sacrifice as a memorial offering, offer this. So I put those points together because when I first heard as a Baptist, and as an evangelical, Catholics say that the Eucharist is a sacrifice. Where bread and wine are being transformed into the body and blood of Christ and being offered up to God for the salvation of the world, I just thought it was insane. I thought this was that this was so unbiblical and so insane. And so I love to tear apart the the Last Supper and see it with new eyes. You know, to see that this whole thing, you know, taking place at the Passover, body, blood, the blood of the new covenant being sacrificial language. This do. Offer remembrance, a memorial offering. The whole thing is sacrificial, and so um, here it is in this beautiful prayer just coming at us again, and and that's all I'll say about that right now.
0: (laughs) Well, let me barrel forward. This is is a good. That's a good place, Ken, to barrel forward into the next section of the prayer. By the way, the next two sections we'll talk more about sacrifice. But here's how then uh, the next section of the prayer unfolds. So Jesus is, right, Jesus is the sacrifice to God. We're joining with Jesus in offering ourselves back to God. That is reflected next, it begins this way. May he, that's Jesus, may he make of us an eternal offering to you so that we may obtain an inheritance with your elect, especially the most blessed Virgin Mary, mother of God, with blessed Joseph, her spouse, with your blessed apostles and glorious martyrs, and with all the saints on whose constant intercession in your presence we rely for unfailing help. (laughs) There's a lot of ecclesiology going on here, and this is really important, because now we're talking about, well, who exactly is God reconciling? To himself. And one of the things that I lost when I became Catholic, gratefully so, is my me and Jesus ecclesiology. That rather, Jesus has gathered to himself an entire people back to God in his own body. And we start talking about those people in this part of the prayer. Make of us. There's that plural language, that people of God language. Make of us an eternal offering to you. That is to say, we together as the gathered assembly are joining Jesus in presenting ourselves back to you, God. Just like before we were with Adam who stole himself out of your hands and and ruined his own life, we are coming back to you and offering ourselves back to you in the second Adam, Jesus. So that, well, why? So that we may obtain an inheritance. That is everything that's coming to the whole people of God that comes back to you in Jesus. And we start saying who they are, which, by the way, is an indication of where they are. So we say, uh, the most blessed Virgin Mary, where's she? Well, she's with God. She's in heaven with God, uh, mother of God with the blessed Joseph. Her spouse, where is he? Well, he's in the presence of God. He's with God. And with your blessed apostles, where are they? Well, they're with God. The glorious martyrs, where are they? Well, according to Revelation, uh, they're at, under the altar with God and with all the saints. And then we say this last thing, on whose constant intercession in your presence, that's where they are, we rely for unhe- unfailing help, which is a way to say, well, what are all of these heavenly Christians or these Christians now in heaven doing? Well, they're praying for us. We're saying in this part of the prayer, or what's being said in this part of the prayer is is it's an ecclesial prayer. Join us to this church, Lord. I'll stop there and toss it to you, Matt.
2: Yeah, I don't have a whole lot to say here other than... um. We're going to call out the three parts of the church over this next few sections. Uh, And for, we've talked about this in some episodes we've done before on the, the way that the church understands saints, but there's three pieces of the church. There's not three churches. There's one church, three chunks. There's the church. Triumphant. That's the saints. There's the church suffering. That's those who we talk about who are in purgatory waiting for their final consolation as they're purified. And then there's the church militant, who's those of us who are on the ground. All those are going to get called out here. But we start here with the church uh, triumphant by talking about those who have come to like a full um, realization of the promise right? Um, Mary more than everybody else, right? And then at the final resurrection, everybody else as well. Uh, the other thing I would say too, is that this is where that idea of the word communion really gets legs. Because if somebody were to ask what's communion to us in our previous context, we would have said, oh, it's the it's the juice and the crackers. But the word communion implies a heck of a lot more than that, man. Communion implies like, community, communication, um, uh, it's, communion stops being like an activity that we do on the third Sunday of the month and becomes more like an outlet that we're plugged into and suddenly all the lights light up. Like, we're a light that is, we're all lights plugged into the same power source. It's much more of a kind of like a, we're communing, um, with Christ. And which means that we're part, I mean, as we were talking earlier about St. Paul and his idea of this mystical body, well, suddenly like we're all connected to the same bloodstream and nervous system. Uh, it's not merely, we all ate crackers and juice in the same room one day. It is a much bigger concept than that. And you see this over the next several prayers actually, where that idea of what communion really is, uh, begins to get legs.
1: Cool. Cool comments. You know, uh what struck me on this, you guys, was the same thing that strikes me still about the confession, uh, the, the general confession we make at the beginning of Mass. And I've commented on that often, that I love it. You know, um, I confess to Almighty God and to you, my brothers and sisters, that I have greatly sinned in my thoughts, words, what I've done, what I failed to do, through my fault, my, through, my fault through my most grievous fault. Therefore, I ask, blessed Mary, ever Virgin, all the angels and saints, and you, my brothers. and I, I just love... It's the communion of saints. I love how in that prayer, we begin by talking about our sin, you know, and it's my fault. And then it just opens up to the whole world, the whole universe calling upon the angels and saints to pray for us. And I kind of have the same response in reading this. I just love to hear that, you know, the most blessed Virgin Mary, Mother of God, Joseph, her spouse, the apostles, the glorious martyrs, all the saints on whose constant intercession in your presence we rely for unfailing help. Just reminds me of the beauty of this, Fantastic, massive idea of the communion of saints. Amen. That's it.
0: Yeah the the Eucharistic table is an ecclesial table, and we talked about this last in the last episode that the body of Christ is also an ecclesial body, and here here we are saying just as we said in the creed back in the liturgy of the word um, that we believe. In the communion of saints. We've, we've said that. We've, we've professed that in our uh, saying the creed together here in this part of the prayer. What's being said is not only do I believe in it, but God draw me into it. Draw me into the communion of saints at the Eucharistic table. Not just this assembly gathered with me, but the assembly in heaven. The angels and the saints, the mother of God and her spouse, the the first apostles. So when I receive the Eucharist, one of the things I'm constantly meditating on is that this uh, miraculous meal, as you called it before, Ken, joins me. It joins me to Jesus and his church in a profound, profound way. But in the next part of the prayer, we're now we're gonna, because that's true, we're gonna ask God, or the Father is going to um, pray for for all of us. Uh, we're gonna ask God to do something even bigger than just drawing me, or even just us, into uh union with with Jesus and his body and the church in heaven. Here's how that little section of the prayer goes. We'll just say this much of it and talk about it. May this sacrifice says the prayer. May this sacrifice of our reconciliation, we pray, O Lord, advance the peace and salvation of all the world. Now, I'll say a little bit here and then toss it to you, Ken, but when I hear this, I hear Genesis chapter 12 echo in my brain the mission of God, the mission of God given first to Abraham, where God says, uh, Abraham, you're my guy. I'm going to bless you. And through you, all the nations will be blessed. Through you and your seed, all the nations will be blessed. That's the mission of God, which is launched in Genesis 12, to draw the whole fractured, fragmented, um, dislocated, cursed world, <laughs> you know, back into communion with God. And what we're saying here is, all oh, this is happening for us, Lord. We pray that you will do this for the whole world. Ken, I, I toss it to you.
1: I only want to say more sacrificial language, more sacrificial <laughs> language. May this sacrifice of our reconciliation, we pray, O oh Lord, advance the peace and salvation of all the world. And I've said enough on sacrifice, so I'll keep my mouth shut. Except that you're right. Here, a, a, a corner is being turned now. The sacrifice that we are offering up now—what will the effect of it be? That's what we're praying for. Will it advance the peace and salvation of all the world? And Matt, why don't you go ahead and and, and add in? I don't want to say anything more.
2: Yeah, I just have a a, a quick comment here. So um, I don't want people to misunderstand. I mean, this is. One of the kinds of lines that people can get hung off, hung up on when they think, oh, well, the, the Catholics are re-sacrificing Christ uh, at every Mass. So, you know, may this sacrifice, you know, advance the peace and salvation of the world. Maybe they, this time it'll work, right? This is not what Catholics are saying. We're always pointing back to the cross. We're always pointing back to the one sacrifice. May this one sacrifice that happened once for all, may it do the work right? And may we be instruments of that work. I mean, that's really what we're praying in this in this situation.
0: Yeah, as we talked about last time, it's what has happened in concrete history, cascading through the ages and becoming present in our own moment where we join the story, the saving story of God, and become participate uh, participants in that, not only through our prayer, but through our activity in, in participation with God in the world. Now, Matt, like you you talked about the three aspects in which the church is discussed in this prayer, we're going to get to the second one. We started with that church triumphant, the church in heaven around God's throne, worshiping and praying. Now we're going to pray regarding the church that's currently in the world, and listen to how the prayer gives us some ecclesiology, really important ecclesiology. Be pleased, we're asking God, be pleased to confirm in faith and charity, your pilgrim church on earth. Now, this is important. With, Catholic word, with your servant, currently we would say your servant, Francis, our Pope, and in the Mass where I celebrate, we say Barry, our Bishop. Matt, who's the Bishop you pray for in your your Mass? We've got Wilton your diocese, Um, Wilton, and Ken. Which the what's the bishop that who's the bishop you pray for?
1: Oh, it's Archbishop Gomez,
0: Jose, Archbishop Gomez. So all three of us are saying Francis, our Pope, and then we say the name, or Father says the name of our local bishop, or our our diocesan, or archdiocesan bishop. However, however it may be, that's the church we're talking about. The order of bishops, all the clergy, and the entire people you have gained for your own. Now, I'll say this much here and then I'll toss it to you, Matt. You know, when people ask me, why can't I go take communion at the Catholic Church? You know, I'm a Presbyterian or I'm a Charismatic or whatever. Um, Why don't you have an, you know, uh, an open communion table? Why don't you um why do you catholics not let us you know receive communion i say listen to this prayer listen to our ecclesiology what we're saying about who we're in communion with when i take communion i'm saying i'm taking communion with the church founded by jesus and and even further that that church has as its universal pastor the successor of saint peter who is currently the bishop of rome pope francis and 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 well i say can you say all of that well no well why would you want to take communion in a church where you don't agree with our ecclesiology where you don't share our ecclesiology you don't share our understanding of the nature of the visible uh church that uh, that is the catholic church and so we're we're saying our ecclesiology in this part of the prayer and what it means to be in, quote, full communion with the Catholic Church. But toss it to you, Matt.
2: Yeah. So in in some ways, this is where we invoke our apostolic pedigree, right? Um, and this this harkens back, and it's going to come to culmination at the very end of this episode with the prayer that we say uh, that closes it all out. But it's really hearkening back to what Paul's saying in Ephesians 2 um, about... We are God's people and members of God's household built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ himself as the chief cornerstone. And in him, the whole building is, is held together. That Keep that phrase in mind because we're going we're gonna, to you know, close it all out with that. But um, we're invoking basically our apostolic pedigree saying, hey, um, the successor of the apostle in my town is Wilton, <laughs> right? And we are in union with him. We're not just on our own. Right, uh, the successor of St. Peter in Rome is Francis, and we're not just on our own; we're with him. we're part of the church um the The one thing that I'll bring up in regard to this too is that you know how different this was from my experience of, of communion and how we talked about it. like when you i mean I don't know what your ecclesial hierarchical situation was in the American Baptist Church or the Foursquare Gospel Church, but would you have said tonight we offer on this third Sunday of the month. Uh, Holy Communion and Union with Bob, our district delegate, and Steve, our general superintendent. Like, would you have like would that have made any sense to you? No, it wouldn't have. It wouldn't have made Never. sense to me. So, Never. I mean, it's just a, a completely different way. We're not we're talking about being part of the church and we're invoking that apostolic pedigree in this part of the prayer. And if you blink, you'll miss it, by the way. There are cradle Catholics who barely notice this unless, like, they get a new bishop and hear, like, it's, it's weird to say the new guy's name, right? There's, this is one of those blink-and-you-miss-it pieces, but it's saying something very important about what we're doing.
1: I am happy that when, we, when this episode comes out, Seth will have the, the text of, of the section of the prayer on the screen so people can keep referring to it and not get, you know, just uh, get unconnected from what, what we're talking about. But the thing that hit me on this section, men of renown, what struck me was the extreme visibleness of the Catholic church. That's what hit me because coming from the background I came from, when I think about it, I thought of the church, you know, Kenny, you mentioned the Jesus and me bit. I thought of the church as individuals around the world who know Jesus. And then they just sort of meet together in different configurations. And there are all kinds within the Protestant world, all kinds of configurations. Some some communities, these, these believers meet together and there's no authority. They just meet in a house and they share what God is showing them. They read the Bible, they sing, they talk together. There are other, there are other Protestant communities that, that, that are congregational in terms of their church polity. They meet together and they all vote on everything. Um, then there are churches that are led by the pastor who rules in the church. There are other ones that are that are led by a board of elders, and you can go up through the ranks to, to higher church forms of Protestantism, and you can have a bishop, or you can even have archbishops, like in a like in the Anglican Church. But right here, you know, it's just you know declaring the church to be. The Pope, our Bishop, the order of bishops, all the clergy, they could have added the deacons, the entire people (laughs) that you have gained for your own. And I think about just a funny little anecdote here. When my daughter was a brand new Catholic and she was just married, she and her husband went backpacking in Europe and they went to Rome and she had never been to Rome before. And she's a brand new Catholic. So she's looking at things with new eyes. And she told me that when she came to Vatican City and she suddenly sees these walls with, with keys on them, you know, like a, you know, engraved into the walls, the keys that she just had this thought of, my, this is the kingdom of God on earth. <laughs> it's right. Here's the headquarters. You know, there's like a headquarters and here it is. So what hit me from this part is just how visible it's just a different way of thinking of ecclesiology, that, that the church is spiritual, but it's also visible and just as visible as, as our own bodies. We're spirit and body as well. It's mm. a visible, visible, organized hierarchical entity existing on earth it's not just all the people who love jesus and they gather together or they don't gather together maybe they just read their bibles at home and pray you know a totally different feeling and it comes through here
0: yeah Uh, before we read the next there's two sections of this prayer Left guys, and I sure appreciate everyone watching and listening. We, we know we're going a little long in this episode, but hopefully you're, you're tracking with us and it's edifying and and helpful. But Ken and Matt, to your point, you know, one of the things I discovered, uh, in my survey of church history regarding division and schism and separation and all of those things is that one of the things that will happen in a church or a diocese or with a bishop or someone in church history who is dividing from the one holy catholic and apostolic church the visible church is that they will cease to include the name of the pope in their eucharistic prayer they'll they'll leave it out and uh, and that is an indicator of division, it's like when I was back when I was Pastor Kenny, I would see you know somebody show up to church uh, without their husband or without their wife, and they had taken their wedding ring off. It's like, oh, we're saying something has happened here uh, in the relationship. So praying for the Pope in the Mass is our way of, if I can say it this way, keeping our wedding ring on regarding our relationship to this one holy Catholic and apostolic church. But then we say this in the prayer. There's two sections left. We ask the Lord, or Father asks the Lord, listen graciously to the prayers of this family, whom you have summoned before you. In your compassion, O merciful Father, Gather to yourself all your children scattered throughout the world. So here we hear it again. It's almost like a double whammy here. Hear it again, the burden of the gathered congregation for the mission of God and the fact that we've been brought into union with God ourselves here in our local assembly. And in our minds, we're turning our minds maybe to the broken and fractured church that we that we just talked about. And, and we're here you could say this is our ecumenical prayer, our prayer for the regathering and the healing of the broken body of Christ. Any thoughts there, Ken?
1: Yeah, the word summoned jumped off the page to me. Listen graciously to the prayers of this family whom you have summoned before you. Because Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. God really has summoned us. (laughs) When we go to meet to celebrate the Eucharist, it's at the command of God. And that is something new to me as well, you know, from my evangelical background. And so that's what jumped out. God has summoned us together to do what our Lord commanded us to do, and that is to celebrate the Eucharist in remembrance of him.
2: So my only thought uh, is also connected with that word summoned. And uh, since we all know that I'm terrible at Greek. Uh, can some of, one of you two who knows at least a little bit of like first year seminary Greek tell me what ecclesia actually means? Like what's the root word <laughs> of the word ecclesia? Like how, what are that? What does
0: that, what does that word mean? Well, I'm glad you went there, Matt, because remember that's how the series began when we talked about the mass that God is calling his church, if you will, summoning his church and built into the word church is the concept of an obligatory summons to come and be with God and his people. Yeah, I mean, it's the Greek what...
1: word ekklesia, which means a yeah. called out assembly.
0: Mm-hmm. A
2: summoned people, a summoned gathering. It's not just people who got together for fun, right? It's, uh, it <laughs> right. has almost like a legal context, like, a, all right, court's in session. You better show up. You've been subpoenaed. I mean, it's not quite like that, but it's still, it's
0: like a summoning. You could say, guys, before we just do this last little section, that in the prayer we are refusing to participate in division we are refusing to cooperate with the dislocation of the body of christ and the dissolution of the human race and the autonomy that's brought into the world by the sin of adam and and those who follow him and instead We're, we're, we're locking back in, as it were, to Jesus, who's drawing all men back to God in his own body. And so in our very prayer, in this very prayer, there is this insistence that we align our minds and our hearts and our actions with God's mission in the world and that we make it part of our prayer and that we see at the Eucharistic table more than any other place is where God accomplishes this in the world. And then we have this last part of the prayer, uh, Matt, back to what you said about the church, right? We're going to see the church in its, in its three uh, ways. The church triumphant, we prayed for first. The church, the pilgrim church on earth, the church militant, we prayed for second. Now here is the church in purgation. The church, you, some say the church suffering, but the church going through its final purgation. You know, awaiting the face to face vision of God, the beatific vision, as it's called. And listen to how we, the gathered assembly and the church all over the world prays for these brothers and sisters. The prayer says to our departed brothers and sisters and to all who were pleasing to you at their passing from this life, give kind admittance to your kingdom. There, we hope to enjoy forever the fullness of your glory through Christ our Lord, through whom you bestow on the world all that is good. Maybe toss it to you first, Ken, if you have any thoughts there
1: yeah i you know I was just playing with this episode in a way I was playing that game of just sort of like what a lot of people do and what they call Bible study to sort of read and just reflect on what jumps out, and the thing that jumped out here was simply these last words through christ our lord whom through whom through christ our lord through whom you that is the father bestow on the world all that is good and i thought about i thought about the centrality of christ god's word teaches us that the world was created through him you know you think of john chapter 1 in the beginning was the word the word was with god and the word was god He was in the beginning with God through him, all things were made and nothing, nothing was made except through him, you know, and it it goes on. And I think about Hebrews chapter one, it says the same thing through whom God created the world. And then Jesus becomes the, the one through whom salvation comes to the entire universe. And now he says, you know, everything that is good comes through Christ. And it just struck me there. And I want to just, I paraphrase really Hebrews chapter one, one of my favorite passages in the Bible, because it focuses on this too. This is where the, the, the text begins in many and various ways. God spoke to our fathers by the prophets and so forth. But in these last days, he has spoken to us through his son, who is the heir of all things, okay? He's the heir of all things and through whom he created the world. And I, so what came out to me here is just that Jesus is the center of all things. The world was created through him. Salvation came through him. He is the heir of the entire universe. Every knee shall bow before him. Every tongue will confess one day that Jesus is Lord. And now this prayer says that it's through him that God bestows on the world everything that is good. And so I just read that, Kenny, and I came away thinking, I want to be with him. I I want to be close to him. He He's the heart. He's the center of everything. That's it.
2: Yeah, that's about that's to come to like full fruition here with, with the way that, that Kenny's about to read the ending and the next piece that comes after this big, long prayer. Again, another prayer that we've spent that's n- 90 seconds, but, you know, has like an hour worth of explanations. I, I mean, one of the things that I would just say is that like we have this extraordinary thing that's happening and you know there's a priest friend of mine that says hey man you go to daily mass and it's you and the priest and two other people that's what you think it is but the angels are there the saints are there like the souls like everybody's there everybody's there right it's all connected and i remember one of the first times that someone said this to me and maybe you've heard this before um you you say goodbye to somebody and like uh they say all right see you in the eucharist and like I'm like what do you mean by that right and in and what they mean by that is that, like, when that happens, we are connected with everybody, right? We're connected with the three parts of the church, the church triumphant, the church militant, um, you know, the church suffering. It's all connected to the one Christ. And it goes back again. And, and Kenny, you're going to, you're going to show how this takes place in the liturgy, but to what I was reading earlier about, uh, in Ephesians chapter two, when it talks about the church being built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets and that, you know, we are, um, God's people, members of the house, we're stones in this building, right? Um And in him, in Christ, the whole building comes together. And that's not just something that St. Paul says. That's something that we say in the liturgy at the end of having gone through all this. Like, how does this all work? How does it work that we're in, con- you know, some sort of weird communion uh that we can't see, right? Or can't detect with our senses with, you know, Wilton, my bishop, and Jose, Ken's bishop, and Barry, your bishop, Ken, and, and you know— all the angels and saints and Mary and Joseph and the apostles, like how's it work? Well the church tells us how it works. I mean that's how this prayer closes out.
0: Yeah, it 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 closes <laughs> it closes. Well he teed it up a, he he
1: teed it up for you pretty good, Kenny. So go ahead and he, take it he away. He sure <laughs> did.
0: He sure did. Well um and so before I read the end of the prayer, which is scripture, uh Ken what you shared and, and really this prayer Reminds me of Philippians chapter one verse six, which I believe says uh, that says, "Being confident of this very thing, he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Jesus Christ." And in a sense, this last part of the prayer before we all launch together um, is a way of saying, "God, there's this whole other group of Christians that we want to pray for." whose lives you are continuing to work in, even though they are absent from the body and present with the Lord, you're still working in their lives to bring about the most good until the consummation of the ages, and we pray for them as well, God. We offer our prayers for them. Again, we refuse to be alone as as a church, as a Catholic church. We refuse to exclude the church triumphant and the church suffering from the pilgrim church on earth. We refuse to exclude one another's dioceses or local parishes or anything. We include them all. Why? Because all of God's children, all of God's people are being drawn up into communion with God through the body of Christ. And that's how the prayer ends. Here's uh, what the the presiding priest will say after all of this Prayer that we've just been working through. He will say this, and this comes from, take your Bible and open it to Romans chapter 11, verse 36. And here is how the prayer ends. Through him and with him and in him, O God, Almighty Father, in the unity of the Holy Spirit, all glory and honor is yours forever and ever now the gathered assembly will respond to this prayer of uh, of 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 acclamation this prayer of profession in this way with what's called the great amen now in my parish we say we sing this we sing the amen three times and we sing it at the top of our lungs and I think it should be the loudest amen in the church because it's the amen that comes with all of this uh, understanding that in Jesus, in the body of Christ, the all of creation is being joined back to the Creator, to God, and, and, he, and it's all being done through the cross and it's being experienced at the Eucharistic table. What else could we say but amen? Ken, I'll give you—you know—I'll toss it to you, and then you can throw it to Matt. But that's as much as I want to say today.
1: No, the no, the amen is the end. I have nothing to say.
2: There you go. I mean, that's how the Bible ends, right? So, I mean, uh, this is there's a lot in here. I mean, just the, the the concepts that that have been thrown around. I mean, the the difference between what we were experiencing in our own churches—you know, having communion in in our you know small gatherings or or you know whether we were at a christian festival or a conference or something where a communion would be taking place versus this idea of catholic communion where um when we receive the holy eucharist we're receiving it in communion with an inmate who's receiving it in prison um a priest who's traveling into the jungles to cut off peoples right we're receiving it with military chaplains on a battlefield like we're receiving it's an incredible thing to ponder an incredible thing but um There you go. We uh, covered a lot. I'm glad we took this prayer as its own thing because there's just so much in it. And hopefully next time you hear it at mass um, or if you go to mass for the first time, the first time you hear it at mass, it won't be one of those things that just kind of like blows by you um, that you really kind of get what the church is asking us to think about here um, so that when you say that great amen, you know what you're saying. Um, But we'll have more because the next part of the mass is where people start getting up and doing stuff so there's gonna be a lot of activity in the next episode in the meantime thank you for being with us for this episode of on the journey if you want to see other episodes we've done on the mass go to uh, chnetwork.org and uh, click on the link to our resources on the journey is in the mix there Uh, you can also join our online community where ken and kenny and i are in there trying to do our best to uh participate in conversations and Lift Our Family Up in Prayer. Uh, that's community.chnetwork.org. And again, all this is made possible because of the generosity of, uh, of our supporters, especially uh, the supporters that are part of our Compass program. So if you want to be part of that and make this resource continue to be available, go to chnetwork.org slash donate. Ken, Kenny, thank you again as always. Have a great day.
0: God bless you guys. You too.
1: Thank you.